0: Welcome to Scholastic Reads, our podcast about books, authors, and the joy and power of reading. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe, Editor-at-Large at Scholastic. Thank you for joining us. Today, we're celebrating Scholastic's 100th anniversary with CEO Dick Robinson. Dick's father, Maurice R. Robinson, known to generations of staffers as Robbie, founded the company in 1920. A venture that started with a small weekly newspaper has since grown into the world's largest publisher and distributor of children's books. Generations of readers have fond memories of attending a Scholastic Book Fair on an autumn afternoon, or in my case, checking off a list of books to purchase on one of the many Scholastic Book Club order forms that arrived in our classrooms. Kids have grown up with and obsessed over Clifford the Big Red Dog, Goosebumps, The Babysitter's Club, Harry Potter, and Captain Underpants. Stories by Suzanne Collins, the late Walter Dean Myers, Raina Telgemeier, Pam Yunos Ryan, and Kelly Yang to name a few, still captivate young readers. Scholastic News and Junior Scholastic are still staples in classrooms across the country. And Scholastic Kid Reporters are still out there getting stories that matter to them and their young readers. Last but not least, young people still receive coveted Scholastic Art and Writing Awards each year, as they have done for nearly a century. Past recipients include Andy Warhol, Bernard Malamud, Kay Walkingstick, and Moselle Thompson. The list goes on, but we wanted to hear from Dick about his memories of his father, the early years at the company, and how he has remained true to his father's vision that few things are more magical than children discovering themselves In the pages of a book. Now, here's Dick Robinson, President, Chairman, and CEO of Scholastic. Hi, Dick. Welcome to the program.
1: Thank you, Suzanne. I'm excited to be talking about Scholastic on our 100th birthday.
0: Congratulations. It's a momentous occasion, and we're all so proud to be part of this venture and sharing your story and your memories on Scholastic Reads. I'd love for you to set the scene for us. It's 1920, and your father, Maurice R. Robinson, is about to embark on a new publishing venture. You weren't around back then, but tell us what inspired him. He wanted to be
1: a publisher, and at that time, magazines were being born all over the United States. Remembering the United States was somewhat of a regional country then, magazines were thought of as uniting different parts of the country and providing a common language throughout the United States. And so Time was started, Reader's Digest was started, many, many magazines were started right after the First World War in in the early 1920s. Scholastic was one of the first, starting in October 22nd, 1920. And it came about in the following way. My father went to Dartmouth College. Uh, he went to Wilkinsburg High School in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. During his college years, he also went into World War I uh, for not in combat, but he was in the army for about a year during his college years. When he got out of college, there was great excitement about magazines as an entity. And somebody had just started a magazine for college kids. uh, So that took that out of his mind. And he went back to Pittsburgh, and he started writing publicity for um, the Chamber of Commerce of Pittsburgh. And one day, he went to visit the superintendent of schools. And in the superintendent of schools office, he saw a enrollment projection for high schools uh, following World War One, And enrollment was projected to go up very rapidly in high school. So he got that idea came to him. That's interesting because that's a market. And so he asked his high school principal from his years before he went to college, to organize a meeting of, of, of principals from Western Pennsylvania. And, and they did so. They were all members of something called the Western Pennsylvania Interscholastic Athletic League. Uh, and so they said, well, why don't you write a, do a magazine for us? So he did that for a little under two years and created a sports magazine, which was the first scholastic magazine. And it sold to, for $0.05 cents to kids in high school. Five cents a copy. He realized the limitations of that quickly, and realized you only could do Pittsburgh, and then he might have to move to Cleveland. So he thought, well, wait a minute, what? Let's do a national magazine. So he got teachers and principals back together again, and they said, well, what? What could I do for kids who were in high school? I said, well, we would like contemporary literature and social studies, whatever language they used for social studies at that time, contemporary and current events. So why don't you do a magazine for that? And so he did. In 1922, he uh, introduced The Scholastic, an American high school weekly. And that was a curriculum magazine for high school students that took hold and grew and slowly got circulation over the 1920s and the 1930s to the point where it became quite successful and well-known in, in the high schools. Uh, and by the end of the 1930s, he was able to start Junior Scholastic, the second magazine, and one that we now publish still under the name of Junior Scholastic. And that began the magazines uh, and who were there to help kids in classrooms under the guidance of the teacher learn more about contemporary literature and social studies.
0: What are your earliest memories of visiting your dad at the office? Now I'm thinking he moved at some point to New York city from Pittsburgh. Yeah.
1: Sometime in the thirties he moved and uh, I was born, uh, you know, sort of the end of that decade. And uh, my early memories are of going to an office party at Christmas time, and sitting under the desks, you know, while everybody was having a drink. But uh, later on, of course, I would visit him uh, some when I was in elementary school, but more by the time I went away to school and came back and visited him. I would come to the office, and at that point, I was like a student that was reading the magazines, uh, and I occasionally I would I would make five dollars by posing as a model for the magazine particularly one that I remember showing boating from, you know, there was a picture of me when I was a teenager, and then still a teenager, I put on a suit, and was dropping a a ballot into a ballot box for an election that was probably uh, somewhere around uh, Eisenhower in 1952, right? Something like that. So anyway, but, uh, so that uh, that that mem- that memory I have, but I would re- remember visiting him in downtown where our Scholastic offices are now, and looking, you know, coming to the office and seeing all the people writing and going around and asking them questions. And, and, uh, and I would also the sports editor, Herman Mason would, uh, take me to uh, special tickets that he had for basketball games and so forth and so on. So that was all part of the mix of my early memories of visiting my father at the office. But I remember a very busy man who was uh, constantly in motion and, uh, was typing and, uh, you know, dictating uh, letters and so forth and so on, and really moved very quickly and very decisively.
0: I remember hearing once that there was maybe a flood in the office. It was a Saturday. Your dad was told by facilities about the leak. He said, OK, he went home, put his raincoat on and came back and got to work. (laughs) That's the kind of guy he was.
1: Very good. That's a a true story. That is a true story.
0: Uh, speaking of true stories, you mentioned Herman Mason. I can't let that go by. I remember Herman Mason. You just have to briefly tell our listeners about this one-of-a-kind, unique writer, editor, sports buff, Renaissance man, and his tenure at Scholastic, probably unparalleled.
1: <laughs> Herman Mason was a uh, a New York native. For sure, uh, he was. Uh, he had gone to NYU. At NYU. He was became the sports editor for the NYU uh, newspaper. Uh, and after leaving NYU, I, I'm not sure what his peregrinations were, but he wound up becoming the editor of Scholastic Coach Magazine, which was a magazine for football coaches and baseball coaches, high school athletic directors. Really sponsored by advertising for various kinds of football uniforms and uh, things to clean out the lockers with locker uh, companies and stuff like that. And it was actually it was one of Scholastic's more profitable ventures at that time because uh, the advertising sort of paid for it and, and it met a need for updated information for high school coaches and there was nothing quite like it. So Herman became the editor of Scholastic Coach and, and also he would write for the magazines and his column would appear in every magazine sports information sports news and he wrote the most colorful and interesting stories about young athletes you know the kids would read these as part of their senior scholastic or junior scholastic or world week or whatever the magazine that we were they were using in high school was at the time these were among the most vividly written pieces you could imagine and, of course, highly read because the kids would be reading for pleasure for the sports. And then there were jokes in the back of the of the magazines that were, you know, curriculum magazines for current events in English. And so the, the kids would read the sports, you know, with the same enthusiasm or more enthusiasm. In some cases, they were reading the fine literature that was being published elsewhere in the magazine.
0: He absolutely was. An, he was an extraordinary writer, those those columns just nailed it all the time. If memory serves, he wrote on a royal typewriter. Yes. Maybe. And when computers came in, I mean, we had to keep it going would. downtown yeah. to get him ribbons for his typewriter. Yes, exactly.
1: <laughs> yeah. exactly. You, would, yeah, you Getting those typewriter ribbons and also, you know, occasionally missing keys and things <laughs> like that. And so, uh, just keeping Herman's typewriters going was, uh, was quite a, an effort. But but yes, he was a, a sort of a unique scholastic person in that he was a professional writer about athletics and techniques for coaches to use and how to you know block and tackle better at, on the one hand, and yet he would write these very exciting sports articles for the magazines at the same time.
0: And I think he was there. Was it sixty years?
1: Sixty years. Yeah.
0: We just had to pay homage to Herman because he was extraordinary. Clearly, Scholastic is such a special place for the Robinson family. It even includes your origin story. I wonder if you could tell us how your parents met.
1: Yeah, This is one that I tell at the English Teachers Convention every year, how my parents met. And uh, it was as follows. My mother won a Scholastic Writing Award when she was uh, in high school for poetry. And uh, she lived in Pittsburgh as in Scholastic. The magazine was in Pittsburgh at that time. And so when she graduated from college, she went to Trinity College in Washington, DC. And she came back home to Pittsburgh. And you know, it was the very first year of the Depression. So jobs were kind of worse than they are now in the COVID period. Nobody could get a job, but especially a young person getting out of, of, of college. So uh, her mother said, you know, why don't you go talk to those nice people who gave you the Poetry Award? Uh, And they're here in Pittsburgh. So she went to the office. Uh, She interviewed with Jack Lippard, who was, uh, you know, the first editor of Coach and a colleague of my father's. And uh, she got the job, you know, more or less And she had to take the summer off to learn shorthand. Because at that time, you know, women were not expected to write; they were expected to d- take letters, dictate letters. To. So she got that job, came back to work, and of course, over time, she met Robbie, who was a bit older than she was, and they got together in some fashion, and as a result, uh, were married uh, in the mid 1930s. And shortly thereafter, I appeared on the scene,
0: <laughs>
1: and and but she, of course resigned her job at Scholastic immediately that she was married. So by then Scholastic had moved to New York during that period just before I was born.
0: That's neat. You definitely learned all aspects of the business growing up and perhaps most important you also were a teacher. Tell us about that time in your life and about your students. What did you take away from that experience that has stayed with you to this day?
1: As you know, I had a bunch of jobs that were connected to the company, not because I was working for the company, but I was working for other companies connected to the company. Uh, So I'll start with those. I worked as a typesetting person with a linotype machine, picking up lead slugs off the floor. That will mean nothing to anybody who has entered publishing in the last 40 years. But before that, that, that's how type was set. I I did that. I also worked in uh, Dayton Press, McCall's, which was then called McCall's Press in Dayton, Ohio, which was a huge printing company with 60 acres worth of printing presses that printed, among other things, Scholastic, Newsweek, and many Time and other magazines. And there I uh, pulled Copies of magazines off of the press and put them in mailbag. Uh, eventually, I went to college. Went had lots of odd jobs around the United States. Eventually, I graduated from college, needed a job, and went to work as a teacher in Evanston High School, in Evanston, Illinois, which was a, one of the top hundred schools in the United States. It was very diverse. It was you know suburban Chicago, uh, but there were kids from all. Different walks of life. There, there were uh, kids from who had emigrated from Arkansas and into northern Chicago and eventually into Evanston. There were the Northwestern professors' sons and daughters. There were the sort of a elite uh, suburban type folks, but very high standards, almost like a college in some sense, because. There were 30 of us in the English department alone with a, a one building school district of the 9 to 12 high school that had 4,500 students in it. So um, what I really learned from that was how does a class work? And in the context of Scholastic, how would the materials that we create be used actually to teach? Uh, and so it was my that teaching experience was one of the most valuable things that I had that prepared me for Scholastic. Now, at that time, I didn't have any idea I was going to work for Scholastic. I wanted to be a writer. And the way I got to Scholastic was we had a magazine called Literary Cavalcade, you might remember. a literature, literature magazine for high school kids. And I thought and they had an opening. And I thought, gee, that'll be great for me. I'm a writer. I want to be a writer. I want to be in the literary circles in New York. And so I came to uh, New York and I went to work for Literary Cavalcade. And that was fun. And after about six months, my boss came along and said, we have something else for you to do. We want you to put together something called Scholastic Literature Units, uh, which were teaching materials for grades uh, 7 to 12. I said, sure, I'll try that. And I realized at that moment that i had a, a i was lucky enough like because of my teaching background to understand the context in which scholastic materials would be used in schools. a lot of the other people in the company were journalists like Herman Mason, and their background was not education, and they they weren't as clear about how the magazines could be used or books in the classroom as I was, so that gave me something I could provide that the other people didn't, as great writers and and great editors as they were, they they didn't have a feel for the classroom in quite the way that that I did, Uh, although all of them had advisory boards and were constantly in touch with teachers, as you well know, as a former editor of one of our most important magazines, and so they were constantly talking to teachers, but didn't have the feeling for the classroom quite the way I had. And so that really helped me. And, and, and when I realized, hey, I'm, th- these guys need me. Plus, there was also a generation issue. A lot of my, my father's uh, generation was in positions of, uh, you know, executives or older editors, really more than executive. And I realized that I, my recency in the classroom and my age helped me understand a little closer to the age of the kids and understood something more about the younger teachers. And that helped as well.
0: Well, since those magazines, we've now grown to an extraordinary global company with book clubs and book fairs and trade books, digital resources, curricula, you name it. I wondered if you could talk first about Clifford the Big Red Dog, (laughs) who many readers of all ages associate Scholastic with Clifford. Tell us about the company's relationship with Norman Bridwell how it began, what you remember about him, and what the thought was when the character was first created.
1: We had these wonderful book club editors who themselves were very good writers, and many of them were well-known children's book writers, including a woman named Beatrice de Renier, who was a rather aristocratic lady, French background, and she was a well-known children's book, had won Caldecott honors and other things like that. But Beatrice and the other editors, uh, and another one named Lillian Moore, who was a, a poet, actually, for adults and young people, and a, and a writer of books for young people, they were the editors of Arrow Book Club and Lucky Book Club, respectively. So Norman Bridwell wrote this and drew this rather cartoonish book. And he took it around to 11 children's book publishers. All of them disliked it because it was it wasn't an award-winning beautifully illustrated librarian oriented kind of book it was like a cartoon book but it, but it had an, a certain appeal and the editors were used to read you know looking at what sold so the, and, wh- and one of the great differentiators for Scholastic was you would, we had these sales reports every week that showed what kids were buying kids themselves were buying through the book clubs So Beatrice, despite the fact that she was an award-winning children's book author with many prizes to her credit, also understood what kids wanted and would buy. And when she saw Clifford, she said, the kids are going to love this. Why? Because Clifford was a big, awkward, lovable dog that got into all kinds of mischief, couldn't speak. He was bigger than a huge building. So his tail kept knocking over trees and he was an awkward dog. She said, kids, that's how kids feel. They feel like I don't belong here. I'm kind of somebody odd in the crowd. And so they're going to identify with Clifford, which of course they did. So far from rejecting his cartoonish illustrations, she loved them. And she dressed them up a little bit, but kept the naivete and personality of these drawings, which were very somewhat childlike. And uh, that's what made Clifford so successful. And of course, now he's the mascot for the company and in effect, representing children and their enthusiasm for a, a big red dog that couldn't do anything right. Uh, But (laughs) was lovable and courageous and uh, always did the right, we always did the right thing, but he never could do it in the correct way. So that was the the origin of Clifford.
0: Speaking of courage, I, I remember when one of my Scholastic Kid reporters interviewed you a few years ago and asked you how you would define yourself. She gave you the choice with one word. Do you remember what the one word was that you used?
1: A favorite scholastic word is resilience that my father coined. So that probably could have been it.
0: That's right. Resilient Richard.
1: Scholastic was always somewhat like Clifford. Was was always running into difficulty because publishing magazines for a Sale in high schools and use in classrooms was not a very lucrative business. And so Scholastic, for its first 30 years, uh, really had trouble making ends meet. It was always sort of a break-even proposition at best. And it it wasn't until the book clubs arrived and Scholastic filled this vast void of... there, There were no children's books in the world, really, and very few books in people's homes... Scholastic brought children's books to through book clubs through teachers and schools, selling books for 25 and 35 cents, and that kind of helped the company stabilize and become profitable. And uh, but in the middle, you know, until we got there, it took 30 years, and even after that, it was a bumpy ride, and resilience was necessary to overcome, you know, all the problems of the depression and. Uh, World War II, and there were no paper to be purchased during World War II, so how do we get enough paper for the magazines? And, and it was constantly hand-to-mouth for many, many years. So resilience was the word that my father used to describe all that, and what you needed to overcome it all.
0: What do you think your father would think if he were looking at the situation today, a hundred years later?
1: Well, um, I've just done a, a video talking about it's sort of a letter to my father. Uh, He used to write me and all of his uh, children letters uh, every week and, you know, telling us what he would, what he was doing and giving us various pieces of advice and the stories of his, you know, struggles with the magazines and with the company and the good things, uh, and but and also his philosophy. So that's very much on my mind, and I think I think what's central to it is that it's finding the right subject matter that's going to get kids excited and help them be excited about reading and learning, uh, the thinking process of being able to organize facts, reasoning, logic, etc., to make arguments and state positions so that. Uh, you can carry out your responsibilities as a, as a citizen. That was part of the mission that he had. And uh, in, toward the latter part, uh, also literature, contemporary literature, and bringing things into the schools that were relevant and interesting and exciting and stuff that would be motivating to kids to, to buy and read. And and that's really what we do now. So I think that it's the scale is a little bit different because the company's 10 or 15 times the size that it was when uh, when he died. And uh, so the scope and scale is a little bit different, but the idea is the same. So I, I don't think any of this would surprise him particularly.
0: The joy of reading is always at the heart of it. And as is opening up the world of literature to all children, we know that many groups have been marginalized. I think it's interesting. You're one of probably one of the few people in publishing who was in the publishing world during the civil rights movement. Is that correct to say? You're probably but, there are not that many
1: left. Yes, that's right.
0: <laughs> so I'm wondering how you think about that historical context and the Black Lives Matter movement and the company's effort to make sure that we're creating materials that are good for all children and that help all children see themselves in the pages of a book.
1: Well, you, you've done a wonderful job of describing that, Suzanne. Here's how I got into this. When I was teaching school, I realized that most kids were not good readers. Why was that? Well, it was in part because we where the subjects weren't connected to their lives. And even the books they you know, read, some of them were like stuff that they couldn't really understand or, or didn't relate to. I mean, great stories overcome time and place, of course. But you have to become an experienced reader to understand that. So my, you know, what I be- believed was you had to get subjects that were going to engage the kids and connect to their own life. For example, the law, right? Something that all kids think they are expert in. Many of them are,
0: right? Kids have an incredible sense of right and wrong, fair and unfair. They want to see justice as they should.
1: So that was always a subject that you could guarantee that everybody in the class would have some sort of feeling about and be engaged with. So shortly after I came to the company, the the Great Cities School Organization, now called the Council for Great City Schools, these were superintendents who uh, had a changing population of African-American and other minorities coming into their schools because of the great migration from the South that had taken place in the 1950s and and early 60s. And so in in 1964, these people all came to Scholastic, the 13 superintendents from Los Angeles, Houston, Atlanta, Chicago, New York, Philadelphia. And and they said, well, we have a problem here. We don't have any materials that these kids can relate to. So I was... uh, summoned uh, at my tender age of 26 or whatever I was. Uh, But I'd been a teacher in a school, so that gave me an advantage. So they brought me into the meeting and I took the notes and kind of organized the meeting. Uh, And they said, we need need something that's going to relate to these kids' lives. So I got deputized to create a magazine called Scholastic Scope. It was first called City Scope to relate to these city superintendents. And we published within two months test issue, which went back out to the 13 school systems, was tested with over 10,000 kids. They did say take out the word city because this magazine could be used by anybody uh, and it doesn't need to focus on the city. Or even if you do focus on the city, it'll be interesting to others. So, So then I said, well, okay, we have to have stories about kids who are of all colors, backgrounds, social class, in order to make this magazine work with the populations that are in these cities and solve the problem to whatever extent we could. so I learned a lot by that and was plunged into the multicultural issue uh, right then and went to visit many many schools with popula- you know with all kinds of kids and backgrounds and and uh, learned a lot about their, that, those lives needs of those teachers and we scope became a very very successful magazine. You know, the kids were excited to read, but helped them organize their thinking and were, had good literature, and, but that happened to be interesting, exciting, and connected to their lives. So that helped me advance into this world that was changing so rapidly at that time. As you asked the question, knowing the insides of the kids who, and what their thoughts were about kids who were different colors, different backgrounds, different experiences. And that pervades, I think, the company today. And now, of course, half of the kids in the U.S. schools are kids of color. So that, that becomes even more important now to be able to do that, to, to be able to capture all the um, diversity of the population in the content of the materials that we create.
0: So that's the past. Let's look ahead a little bit. Let's say 50 years down the road. What do you see for Scholastic? What's your vision for the future?
1: Having just thought about this a lot, Suzanne, at our 100th anniversary, what is our core value, right? I mean, what, why are we here still? And how would we be more relevant, continue to be relevant? Because here we are, a 100 year old company. We're still uh, a lot of print, although digital is coming in very rapidly, uh, especially with the pandemic and people knowing that you have to have remote learning, but so are print products, too. It it goes back to something we did talk about earlier, which is the the essence of what Scholastic does, I think, is finding inside each child that topic, subject matter, uh, story that comes alive in that child's mind and heart. And makes them think, you know, I want to be like this person. I want to know the end of the story. I want to be like this character. That's what the secret of what we do. And we do this through our book clubs and our magazines and our book fairs. And we're putting all this wonderful stuff into the hands of kids. We find the thing that they each inside them relate to. And I think that's the secret of our relevance, right? That we continue to do that. You know, as a former magazine editor, how you always tried to find that story uh, or the story about some child who would have succeeded in doing something despite handicaps or problems. And, that you know, those stories always resonated because all kids want that guidance and information and role models of how they can think about themselves and improve their lives. And, And as long as we can continue to do that, that's what makes us continuing relevant. As long as we keep that, even if it's digital, or it will be digital, that multiplies our chances of being relevant in the 21st century.
0: So we don't need a linotype machine.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll never forget that, but uh, (laughs) uh, there's a lot easier ways to do it than (laughs) picking up uh, buckets full of hot lead off of the floor.
0: This was a joy talking with you, Dick. I'm so appreciative of your time. Thank you. To close out the episode, here's Dick reading from the letter he wrote to his father as Scholastic celebrates 100 years.
1: Your core belief was in the power of information skillfully presented to help young people get excited about the world around them and learn the skills that would enable them to think clearly focus on facts, reason, and logical argument, how you love those words, so they could present their own thoughts and feelings in a convincing way about the important issues of the day, or to fall in love with a story that helped them understand what it is to be human.
0: My great thanks again to Dick Robinson for joining me today. And thank you for listening. We hope you'll share your favorite Scholastic memories on social media. Special thanks to producer Bridget Benjamin, associate producer Mackenzie Cutrizula, sound engineer Daniel Jordan, and music composer Lucas Elliott Eberl. I am Suzanne McCabe. We look forward to sharing more Scholastic Reads next time.